Welcome to episode 601 of the Entertainment 2.0 podcast brought to you by the digitalmediazone.com. I'm Josh Pollard, and this is the show that puts you in control of your favorite movies, music, shows, and games. A solo episode for you this week, a Josh solo episode. That is, Richard is away, but I am here to get you caught up on the last two weeks of consumer entertainment technology news. And there was a lot. We're going to kind of whittle it down to the most important things that happened over the last two weeks. But we always like to start the show with a little bit of listener feedback. And Justin sent us some email to entertainment20 at the digitalmediazone.com. Justin writes, listening to episode 599 today, and the comment Glenn made about e-waste, I do not think is necessarily true. He was talking about e-waste related to projectors and TV screens. And he says, unless you're talking about projectors, well, and he was saying the projectors have less e-waste because they're physically smaller. And he says, so unless you're talking about projectors with laser or LED systems, which are not replaceable, and thus the projector simply dies, so therefore you still have an e-waste problem. Projectors have globes. Uh, Reminder, Justin is also in Australia. We would just call them light bulbs. Uh, But projectors have globes, many of which are not conducive to to good e-waste policies or health if broken. He says, I admittedly have a different perspective as it has been for many years a regular part of my employment to deal with AV equipment. He says, when will we get away from the fact that us IT specialists are not all AV guys and vice versa? Projectors also have the issue on of fade on the globes, again, light bulbs, which is a large reason one of our clients ditched them and installed 60, uh, 65-inch and 75-inch TVs in their place. How much work this has saved me is astronomical. There are no fans and filters to worry about cleaning, globes to replace, etc. To be sure, TVs have their faults, and we have had to fail due to a, a bad batch of system boards. But that was all warranty work. So... Justin making a case here that projectors not necessarily better from the e-waste perspective. It kind of depends on your use case there. If you can keep a projector for more years, uh, far more years than your TV, which you might just throw away when it's done, then perhaps, but he does make that good argument uh, about having to replace bulbs and uh, dealing with the maintenance of fans and filters also. Uh, but lastly, and this was my my favorite part of the message, he says, on another note, I suggest that fake Atmos now be referred to as Fatmos. <laughs> I like it, Justin. I like it a lot. Uh, I think we might have to keep using that one. And really, Justin here is talking about the sound bars and, and other TVs and, and things like that that say that they produce an Atmos sound despite not having true height speakers. So I I like it. Fatmos, 
that might just need to stick around. So digging into this week's news, there were a lot of product announcements out there, and we're going to start with Amazon's. Now, Amazon had a huge event. They always do this in the fall where they announce what feels like dozens of new products. And a lot of them are smart home related things that aren't as relevant to this show. But one product that was very relevant to this the show in, partic- in particular was a new version of the Fire TV Cube. It is the third generation of the Fire TV Cube. And the Fire TV Cube is probably the the less maybe the least common of all of the Fire TV devices because it's also the most expensive. But it's the most expensive because it's also the most full-featured. It is an Amazon Fire TV streaming device, but it's also an Echo. So you just hook this up to your TV and now your living room has a streaming stick and a voice assistant. So not not a bad idea to to combine both of those into one device. So the new Fire TV Cube, the third generation one, it has a faster processor, which should help navigation, of course. It's also supposed to help with upstreaming 1080p content to 4K because, of course, the Fire TV Cube does support 4K playback along with Dolby Atmos, real Dolby Atmos, Dolby Vision, and HDR Plus for all of your video and uh, high-resolution audio needs. This one also is the first one to include Wi-Fi 6E, which is a new Wi-Fi standard, which should be uh, even more performant if you have a network, you know, a router that supports Wi-Fi 6E. Uh, It runs at a higher frequency range, which should be less crowded, meaning less interference. Uh, And so if you are connecting this to your network wirelessly and you have uh, the latest tech on your Wi-Fi network, you're probably going to get some really good streaming performance from from this new Wi-Fi chip. The other thing that's really different about this version of the Fire TV Cube is it has an HDMI input. And that means that if you still have a cable box or device like that, you can plug your cable box into the Amazon Fire TV Cube and then your Fire TV Cube into the TV, which sounds, well, it sounds familiar, really. I was going to say interesting, but but familiar, really, because it's by no means the first device to do this. The one that really sticks out to me, of course, is the Xbox One. When it first launched back in 2013, Microsoft really wanted the Xbox One to be the center point of your home entertainment system. And so they wanted you to plug your cable box into your Xbox. And then they provided a user interface for controlling your cable box and viewing it by passing the video through to your Xbox, which did uh, allow some some cool scenarios. Uh, it also, the, the Xbox One at the time had an interface that would allow you to snap one app to the side of the screen while playing a game on the, the main part of the screen. Uh, and you could put live TV through your cable box on the, the snapped side of the screen and then play a game on the 
other roughly two thirds of the screen. And it was kind of cool, but the idea didn't really take off. And eventually Xbox stopped supporting it entirely. And now the Xbox Series X and Series S do not have HDMI inputs anymore. We don't actually know what the interface is going to look like for controlling this. I would imagine it just ends up looking like another tile or app on the home screen of the Fire TV interface that just basically passes through the video, allowing you to see what is coming through your cable box. But because this is an Amazon Fire TV device with a built-in Echo, that means voice control plays a big role in all of this too. And because of that, you can use your voice to control your cable box. So if you want to watch channel 675, you can just ask the voice assistant to tune to that channel, which might be nice. I've always wondered how much people actually use voice remotes for things like this. But if that's something that sounds good to you, well, you're going to have your option to do this because this does launch on October 25th, which is only a couple of weeks away. The price of this is increasing to $139.99. I believe when the original Amazon Fire TV Cube launched, it was $119. So it's going up a little bit. Maybe it's inflation. Maybe it's because of the new functionality. I'm curious what everybody thinks about this because the the potential is there uh, to to truly have a, a one device sort of of setup on your TV or at least a one input setup with your cable box being plugged directly into this and then maybe only needing to use the Amazon Fire TV remote to control all of this. But it's also getting up there in price. $140 makes it one of the most expensive streaming devices out there. Uh, The only two that I can even think of that are more expensive, of course, are the Apple TV and the NVIDIA Shield. NVIDIA Shield regularly goes on sale for less than this, though. So you do have some options there. But if you are really locked into the Fire TV ecosystem, then And especially if you're looking to add an Echo device to the same room where you would be using this device, it's kind of hard to beat this. So there's your new Amazon Fire TV Cube. Again, $139 available October 25th. Next up is another product announcement. And this is one that had been leaked so many times. We were just waiting for the actual official announcement. And that is a new Chromecast with Google TV. But don't get too excited. This is not the updated Chromecast that I've been waiting for. This is not a higher performance Chromecast. Actually, it's essentially the opposite. This is the Chromecast with Google TV HD, which unlike the Chromecast with Google TV that was launched in 2020, that one supported 4K video. This one only supports HD 1920 by 1080 video. That's the maximum resolution, but it oddly, to me at least, supports HDR. And maybe that's just because of the chipset that it uses and things like that, because I can't think of a single TV or display that is 1080p and is and also 
supports HDR. It just doesn't seem like a very common combination. And maybe that has more to do with the fact that basically no one buys 1080p TVs anymore. It's hard to find a TV that isn't 4K, which brings me to kind of the last point. It's cheaper. It's significantly cheaper. The the 4K version of the Chromecast with Google TV is $50. The HD version is only $30. So it's significantly cheaper for sure. But does that $20 difference when we're only talking about $30 or $50 make that big of a difference? Even if you're planning to buy this for a bedroom TV where you've got your older 1080p TV that you're going to hook this up to, how long before that TV gets replaced? Like, aren't the chances decent that this device might end up on a 4K TV that you own sooner rather than later? And if that's the case, you're going to want the 4K version. And is $20 really that big of a difference to not just pay for the a higher resolution version? To me, it, it seems like just buy the 4K version. It's also probably going to perform better because the HD version has less RAM, that's that's memory, uh, in it. So an Android is an operating system that's that likes to have some extra RAM. And with the 4K version of the Chromecast with Google TV, People already talk about that device getting bogged down as you install and use more and more apps. In terms of storage space, it's got the same 8 gigs of storage that the regular Chromecast with Google TV has, so you're not going to have more room for even more apps. So potentially worse performance, definitely lower resolution, and a $20 price difference. To me, I I think you just Buy the regular Google, uh, the, the regular Chromecast with Google TV that supports 4K. What I'm really hoping here is that they're about to release a new version of the 4K version. But considering how many leaks there were for this one, if we haven't seen any leaks for an updated version of the 4K, it means that it's probably not coming anytime soon. So I should stop getting my hopes up for that, I suppose. But even if they were to release a new one this year and it and they increase the price of it to $60 then there's there's a bigger price separation there it's i think it's easier to say mm, okay i know it's a $30 difference but that's literally twice the price then maybe that makes the the HD version make more sense for people and i i would certainly be willing to pay $60 for an updated Chromecast with Google TV that had more RAM, more storage, and a faster processor. That's really what we're looking for uh, out of uh, an updated Chromecast and probably updated Wi-Fi technology too. So that would be nice to see. So there you go. Chromecast with Google TV HD uh, available now for $29.99. Our last video story of the week is, uh, I don't don't even know how, how to talk about this. It's, it's, almost getting laughable. It is another streaming service getting renamed. In this case, it's Epix. Epix is owned by MGM, which is actually owned by Amazon now. Amazon bought MGM earlier this year. And 
MGM has decided the the Epic's name doesn't make sense for them anymore. So are they going to try something completely different? No. They're going to go the route of almost every other video streaming service out there. And they're going to simply name it MGM Plus, just like Disney Plus and ESPN Plus and Paramount Plus. I mean, it's it's laughable how many of these services just take their brand and add a plus, and that's the name of the streaming service now. I mean, I I guess the consistency is helpful. If you see a plus after a, a company's name, I guess we're just supposed to automatically assume that that's their video streaming service. So, if Jiffy Lube wants to start their own streaming service for oil change repair videos, Jiffy Lube Plus, I. I <laughs> It's just getting a little bit ridiculous. That's the only thing that's changing here is the name to MGM+. Plus. It happens January 15th, 2023. Nothing else changes. That's it. New name. We'll see. Uh, again, I guess consistency is a good thing in trying to figure out what all of these different services are. Of course, the one problem it doesn't solve is knowing what's available to watch on all of these different Plus services. Okay, so let's move on to some gaming news. Some more big news in this category over the last couple of weeks. The first one, it's kind of surprising, but also kind of not surprising. Google, despite the fact that as recently as July, said that they wouldn't do this, are killing off their Google Stadia video game streaming service. It's a service that had a loyal but small following, apparently too small of a following, because part of their official statement when they announced this was to say that the service simply hasn't gained the traction with users that we expected. Not surprising. They barely marketed this thing. It was a good service. It it had a lot going for it. The the Wi-Fi controller that, uh, that the service used gave you a a low latency connection to the streaming service. That was nice. They did offer a Google Stadia Pro subscription service, which was kind of a blend between uh, a a, a service that would give you uh, games that you could just play as part of the subscription, plus the ability to play all of the games that you've purchased individually. But it never really took off. I think marketing is the main reason here. Xbox markets the ever-living crap out of Xbox Cloud Gaming through their Xbox Game Pass Ultimate subscription, and Amazon does an okay job marketing their streaming platform called Luna. Maybe that's a little bit more helpful because Amazon also owns Twitch, one of the most popular video game streaming sites out there. And and Luna has a very similar way of working also. They have their own controller that connects directly to the streaming services through Wi-Fi. And so now that's going to be your option. Like if that's the sort of model that you want to go with, Luna is your best bet. And for a lot of people who have tested all of these services, most have said that when it comes to a low latency gaming experience, Luna beats the rest of them, including Game Pass, including Stadia, including NVIDIA, GeForce Now. Those are the other main players 
left standing in this space. At least, like I said, the main ones. Are we going to see more, uh, more of these companies fading away? Or will we see some consolidation? Might Amazon try to uh, purchase one of the other competitors? I don't think so, because I don't see Amazon attempting to purchase NVIDIA as a whole. Could they attempt to buy uh, NVIDIA's cloud gaming service? Potentially, but I'm not sure that makes a whole lot of sense. And Amazon certainly isn't going to buy Xbox's platform. And I don't see Xbox trying to buy Amazon's either. So NVIDIA seems like the only real option there for for a potential buyout, but I'm not so sure about that. But then again, it's another service that is not super well marketed and is kind of a niche service that's really targeting more of the the PC gamers who are looking for a very high-end streaming service. So that's enough about the the collaboration of it. What are some of the rest of the details? So it's shutting down January 18th, 2023. If you already own games on the platform, you can keep playing them until January 18th. The store is now closed though. You can't buy any more games. You can't buy DLC for any of the games that you might be playing. You can't buy any more of the hardware either. So the controllers. And when the service initially launched, you could only get it by purchasing a controller with a Chromecast Ultra. So you can keep playing it for a little while longer, but then what? Like you've got these games and this hardware that you've purchased that now is useless. Well, kind of surprising to me that perhaps the most surprising aspect of this entire story is that Google is refunding all purchases, all of them. Hardware, if you bought the controller, including the controller with the Chromecast Ultra, any games, any paid DLC, any of it that you purchased, Google is going to refund you for all of it. And if you bought for for the items, whether it be hardware or games that you purchased directly from the Google Play Store, those refunds are going to be automatic. You're not going to need to do anything at all, including not needing to send any of that hardware back. So if you got it with a Chromecast Ultra, that's cool. You've still got a Chromecast to use. But the controller, on the other hand, unless they do an update to this controller that perhaps adds Bluetooth functionality, that would probably be the best option. It's e-waste to get all the way back to that first piece of listener uh, comments that we talked about at the top of the show. Right now, you can't use the Stadia controller with anything but Stadia. So after January 18th, unless they release some sort of update to that controller, it's e-waste. And that would be really, really unfortunate. So hopefully they're going to do something to make these controllers usable with other gaming platforms. The last piece of news is another official product announcement. This is one that we knew was coming, but we didn't know many of the details. Now we know them all. It is the Logitech G Cloud Gaming Handheld. And this is the easiest way to think of this device is think of a Nintendo Switch, but with but with a, a permanently attached controller on the side that looks more like Xbox controls than, than the Switch controls. So really, maybe it's easier to think of the 
Valve Steam Deck. If you are familiar with that device, it looks a little bit more like that, but a little bit smaller because it's got a 7-inch 1080p 60 hertz screen on it, but it does have the dual analog thumbsticks, a D-pad, four face buttons, the the two triggers at the at the top where your where your fingers would naturally fall on the controller. So it it looks like a 7-inch Android tablet with Xbox controls permanently attached to the side of it, which sounds pretty great. It charges via USB-C, it has a headphone port, it also supports Bluetooth for audio and USB-C headphones. If you've got those, that was a thing for a little while, although I can't think of the last time I saw anyone using a pair of USB-C headphones. Regardless, maybe one of the most important aspects of this device is it gives you a 12-hour battery life, which is pretty phenomenal. So what can you play with the Logitech G Cloud gaming handheld? This is where things get really interesting. This is a Wi-Fi Android tablet, Wi-Fi, and it is meant for cloud gaming, and it natively supports the Xbox cloud game streaming and the NVIDIA game streaming service also. So you buy this, you connect it to your Wi-Fi, and you're immediately playing any games that are in those services if you have paid subscriptions to those. Now, it also apparently supports playing downloaded Android games that has the Android Play Store on it. So that, in theory, works and would probably work fairly well for for some games. It's got a Snapdragon 700 series processor, which is not exactly top of the line, but it's pretty good. It's probably going to play the vast majority of mobile games that you could play on Android. The the other thing that I think is worth pointing out here is that 7-inch screen, I said it's a 1080p resolution screen. If you're comparing this to the Switch, which I, I think is the best comparison, that is far superior. The Switch is only a 720p display. Although, if you're using this for Xbox Cloud Gaming, that doesn't stream at 1080p. It streams at 720p. That's not the case for NVIDIA's game streaming service, though, you can stream uh, at even higher resolutions than this, depending on the subscription tier that you're paying for. Weight matters for a device like this for a portable gaming handheld. It weighs 463 grams. If you don't know what that really feels like, that it is heavier than a Switch. The Switch weighs 398 grams, but it's significantly lighter than the Steam Deck, which is 669 grams. So. It weighs a little bit more than a Switch. What's the price on this? Well, if you pre-order it before October 17th, it's 300 bucks. After that, the official retail price is $350. And that's where this whole thing starts to fall apart, in my opinion. This looks like a cool device. It looks like a really, really good device for cloud gaming. It looks like a good device for Android gaming. But... If it's for cloud gaming, you have to have an internet connection and it only has Wi-Fi. So you can only play this in places that have really great Wi-Fi, like your house or maybe the office. It's probably not going to work on an airplane or in an airport or on your commute. For those situations to work better, it would 
probably really need a 5G cell connection, but it doesn't have that. And at 300 bucks or 350 bucks, which I think is, is really the more appropriate price to be talking about here, because it's only 300 bucks for another week and a half, that's a lot of money to pay for a device that you can really only use in, in places that have good Wi-Fi and that really doesn't do anything different than if you used a controller with the phone that you already have. And there are, of course, clips that would allow you to use an Xbox controller or a PlayStation controller uh, to, to connect to your phone. There are controllers that uh, essentially wrap around your phone to give you the same sort of form factor as this. And all of them cost significantly less. The major difference to those, though, is they're using your phone. And so you're draining your phone's battery to play those games. And your phone probably isn't going to last for 12 hours of cloud game streaming on it. So I think it it has its place. I think the price is the biggest problem. I think if this device was $200, a lot more people would be interested in having this around to play games while their kids are using the TV or to play a little bit more in bed before going to bed. There are definitely use cases for this thing, but I'm not sure that there are enough use cases to justify the $350 price tag when for $300, you could get a Switch. For even less, you could get a Switch Lite. And for about $400, you could get the base model Steam Deck, which plays way more games and will play them offline because they're running locally. Of course, the other big problem with Steam Deck is far far shorter battery life because all of that processing needs to happen on the device instead of in the cloud. Most Steam Deck users are saying they're getting two to three hours of battery life, not 12. So a lot of pros and cons to the Logitech G Cloud gaming handheld. I will be very curious to see how this actually does in the market and to see if it gets a price reduction anytime soon. Well, that's it for our news this week. The last segment of the show, it's called What's Going On in Our Entertainment Centers. And folks, it has been a busy, busy, busy couple of weeks for me. Watching TV and movies, not something I've had much time to do. I haven't even really played that many video games. Of course, a little bit of NHL uh, and a little bit of Forza. But the, the main thing that I wanted to chat about this week is I did get to play the Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 beta a couple of weekends ago. You know, I, I'm a big Call of Duty fan. I'm not an absolute, you know, I'm not absolutely crazy about it. I don't go and buy every single one, but I've always liked the Modern Warfare games. The the original Call of Duty Modern Warfare, uh, which was Call of Duty 4 back on the Xbox 360, is the game that really got me into Call of Duty. Uh, so I basically play the Modern Warfare versions. I play the Black Ops versions. The other ones I've not been so into. So I had pretty high expectations for Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. And this was just a multiplayer beta, so I don't know anything about the the single-player campaign. But I really enjoyed the Modern Warfare 2 multiplayer beta. It, It felt like they've slowed down player movement. It feels like they've also made it so that 
the soldier that you're playing as isn't as strong. You can't throw grenades as far as you used to be able to. So uh, it, it's like your team's third line quarterback is is who you're playing as now because you can't throw the ball very far and you don't run very fast. And I kind of like that aspect to it. It slows the gameplay down a little bit more. Also, the time to kill seems to be reduced even when playing in the normal mode as opposed to hardcore mode. It just didn't seem to take as many direct hits uh, to to take down one of your opponents. All of that kind of seems to help me as an older gamer who does not have the same reflexes as a lot of the teenagers and 20-somethings that are playing these games regularly. I felt like I had a little bit more of a chance in some of these. Now, that shorter time to kill absolutely means that if someone sees you before you see them, you have basically zero chance of winning that gunfight. But that's really how it should be. Um, so I, I, I think I like this a lot. Like this is, this is pretty much a, a definite buy for me. This is, uh, you know, I, I, I skipped Call of Duty Vanguard. I've still been playing. Uh, Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War, which is now two years old at this point. And I'm ready to move on to Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2. If you've liked the previous Modern Warfares, I think you're going to like Modern Warfare 2 a lot. All right, well, that's going to do it for this episode. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can find us on Twitter. Richard is at Richard Gunther. I'm at Josh Pollard, and the website is at DigiMediaZone, D-I-G-I. Media Zone. Uh, you can get all of the show notes from everything that we talk about in the show and, and every other episode, of course, over at our website, www.thedigitalmediazone.com. While you're there, you can check out uh, Richard's other podcast that we host. It is called Home On, where he covers all of the latest smart home technology from more of a DIY perspective. You can also uh, watch this show live over there. We normally, especially when Richard and I are both doing the show to, together, uh, record the show live on Tuesday nights around 8.30 p.m. Eastern. We're actually using Twitch to to watch this, so you can follow us there and be notified when the show is going live. Uh, but we also tweet when we're going to be recording the show live also. So follow us on Twitter to get uh, a couple of hours of heads up about future live shows of this podcast because that's going to do it for episode 601. I'm Josh Pollard. Thanks for listening to Entertainment 2.0. Adios.